Would you welcome with me Nate Hurst as he comes to share today? All right, thanks for having me. Aaron and I first started coming here about 12 years ago, and the vision that excited us about this church was win Durango. And that is the vision that was here then. And I know Mark and Steve carry that tradition today, and it is exciting to be here to share with you this morning. And I hope that some of what I share will encourage you towards that end. So as we get started, you can flip ahead. We're not going to read there yet, but you could flip ahead to Romans chapter 4, and we'll get there in a minute. But as I start out, Mark is correct in saying that I'm on staff with Master Plan, and Master Plan is a Great Commission-focused ministry. We are completely and resolutely focused on sharing the good news that is only found in Christ with students that desperately need it, and then discipling them into the world changers that God has made them to be. And for all of us in this congregation, that's why we're here in Durango. Acts 17, 26, and 27 tell us that God has chosen the places that we would live and the very times that we would live there so that men might find God. And he's choosing to use us as a congregation here in this city to bring Durango to himself. So Aaron and I have been here for about 12 years. When you don't see us here, it's usually because we're running a retreat or we're speaking at a different church or something along those lines. But we absolutely love this body of believers, and there are so many people here that I've known. Matt, golly, we go back so many years, and it's exciting to be here. Nine years ago, this very month, is when we made that step into full-time ministry, and it's involved some of the greatest steps of faith in our life. And nine years ago, I was teaching an evangelism class here at the church, and we got to tell that class that we'd been accepted on staff, and that that was the next step in our life. And all through the way... As we've taken those steps of faith, God has always come through time and time and time again. He's always been faithful. He's never let us down. And I think maybe as you look back over your life, you can be confident that he's done the same for you. So as we talk this morning, I want to talk about what it means to walk by faith and to grow the faith that God has given you. So we're going to define faith. We're going to talk about the object of your faith. And then I'm going to close out talking specifically and practically about how to grow the faith that God has given you. And as I get started, I have to warn you, I'll be going pretty hard and fast here. We'll go through a lot of scripture. If you're taking notes, don't try to write down every single thing I say, but write down what God really does in your heart. If God hits you hard with something, write that down. And some of the key verses will be up on the screen. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. So faith is a pretty big deal, right? And of course, we all know that as Christians, it's a big deal to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 and Romans 1, 17 tell us that we are to walk and to live by faith, right? So this isn't something that's supposed to just be passively a part of our past and our, and our history and our testimony, but rather something that is supposed to be the context of our entire life with Christ. And as we think about that, a story from Isaiah 7 comes to mind. Ahaz was attacked and he was the king of Judah. He was attacked by Israel and by Aram. And, of course, Judah, being a small nation, was full of fear and anxiety about what this meant. And their entire existence was on the line. And Isaiah prophesied to King Ahaz and spoke to him and said in verse 9, If you do not stand by faith, you will not stand at all. Okay? And the call is the same to us as believers today. If we do not stand by faith, we will not stand at all. We'll be collapsing and collapsing, and God will be there to walk through it with us 
and to pull us back up. But walking and living by faith requires taking a stand every day by faith, just as it did for Ahaz, just as it has for every believer in the history of God's people. It still is the same for us today. Hebrews 11.6 puts it this way, Without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And Romans 14.23 says that anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. Okay, so we get a picture of how important this issue is. I think the reason faith is so important is because it is what develops intimacy with God and friendship with God. You remember in James 2, we read about Abraham and how because of his faith, he was called the friend of God. That's in verse 23. I have kids, young, my daughters are the ones that are always dancing in the back. And the greatest thing that I desire is for them to really trust me, for them to really have faith that I love them, right? When I tell them certain things, I say, do this or don't do that. I want them with all my heart to obey me because they really know that I love them and they trust me as their father. And I think God desires the same of us. He desires us to walk by faith so that he can be your greatest father and God, so that he can be intimate with you. You can see him coming through for you in a daily way, in an authentic way, not just in an intellectual or cerebral way. So in scripture, and we'll get to this in a minute too, We're called to move mountains by faith. Jesus actually talked about that. And I don't see a whole lot of that happening in the church at large in America today. We've become very passive. We have begun to live very safe lives. And I was talking to Mark before we started here about Andrew Murray. Murray is a great writer. And he puts it this way. As we look around the church, we see so many indications of feebleness, failure, sin, and shortcoming. They compel us to ask, why is it? Is there any necessity for the church of Christ to be living in such a low state? Or is it actually the opposite, that God's people should be living always in the joy and strength of their God? Every believing heart must answer, it is possible. So that's my hope for this morning, that when you leave, you'll agree with Murray that it is possible. We can walk in the joy and the strength of our God, doing all that he's called us to as a people. It is possible. So we're going to talk a little bit about how we can actually see that happen. So Hebrews 11.1, you can read with me. It says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We can quickly just skim over that and not really get into what that means. So let's think about it for a minute. That literally means that you're so sure of God and his power that you live like he is true and that he'll do all that he says he will do. Right? It means that I'm so confident in him that I can live Like he actually is going to show up daily in my life. If I told you right now, race down to City Market, they're giving away $1 million checks. Probably not a single one of you would stand up and run. Because you wouldn't believe that that was true. And your life surely would not evidence that you believed it, right? But if you became convinced of that fact, (laughs) this room would be empty immediately. See, if you really, really, really believe something, it's going to affect how you live your life. And if we're walking by faith in God, it's going to affect every single aspect of our life. Faith is not just conjuring up enough feelings of anticipation to force God's hand. Okay? It's trusting God regardless of how you feel. My boss, Russ Akins, always says if faith had a feeling, it would probably be fear. Because it's putting everything on the line saying, God, you have to come through or I'm dead. 
And it's in that context of trusting God, regardless of the stakes, that God comes through in huge ways. See, walking by faith will involve taking risks for Christ. And we're going to close with that today, and I'm going to challenge you to think through a risk that God wants you to take for him. And with that in mind, faith, I like to say, is doing your part, trusting God to do his. You're not called to a whole lot. You're called to simply trust him. It seems difficult, but at the same time, it's fairly easy. (laughs) Takes big risks, but I'm not the one that has to do the work. I live by faith trusting him to do the work. So faith is doing my part, which isn't all that much. Trusting him to do his part, which really is everything. Faith is taking a step based on the evidence beyond where the evidence alone can lead you. Tim and I got the privilege of talking to some philosophers on campus, professors and students and community members. And we talked about this very thing about faith, but kind of in a different context, because I think we were about the only Christians in the room, maybe a couple others. <laughs> but it was a great time. But I shared that definition as well. As believers, you have every reason in the world to know that what you believe is true, right? The evidence for our faith in Christ is overwhelming, And we could talk about that at a different time. If you're interested in the evidence, uh, check out The God Solution. It's a radio show every Sunday morning at 8.30 a.m. And I go through evidence for faith in Christ every Sunday on a secular station. The evidence for our faith is strong. And you can stand on it. But then God's going to call you to take a step beyond just the intellectual aspect of all of this. Faith is banking everything that you are, have, and desire on him coming through. It's putting yourself in a situation where if you fail, you'll lose and be humiliated if he doesn't show up. Right? Faith is obeying God and his word alone, resolutely focused on him regardless of the opposition. It's a lifestyle of radical dependence on Christ every single day. Knowing that if he doesn't show up, everything is lost. See, many of us long for such a fervent faith, but it's so rarely seen. And that brings me to this great Old Testament example in Romans 4. So read with me, starting in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Do you want that kind of faith? That unwavering faith? that ability to fully trust God for what he's called you to and promised to you, I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of faith. I want to be able to read that passage and substitute my name in there, but I'm not nearly there yet. That being said, the amount of your faith or the strength of your faith isn't what's so important, but the object of your faith is what's important. Faith is not the absence of doubt. You're going to doubt about everything in life. You're going to have doubts filter through your head about whether you're in the right city, whether you have the right career, whether you married the right person, whether you're in the right church, whether you're doing the right thing with your life, you'll have doubts about everything, whether you got the right car, whether you're eating at the right restaurant. I have a lot of doubts after Erin orders because she always orders the best thing on the menu, and I wish I would have ordered that. <laughs> you'll, you'll have doubts about everything. That is an aspect of humanity. It's not a function 
of your faith at all. Okay? So faith isn't the absence of doubt. And doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is passivity and apathy. Right? The opposite of faith is living like what I believe really isn't true. Living just like everybody else. People put faith in ridiculous things all the time. Just look at our financial system in this country that so many people put their faith in. It's ridiculous. And we have so much more reason to put our faith in the God who loves us, who's given everything for us. Timothy Keller puts it this way in his book, Reason for God. Imagine you are on a high cliff and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you as you fall is a branch sticking out of the very edge of the cliff. It is your only hope and it is more than strong enough to support your weight. How can it save you? If your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you do not actually reach out and grab it, you are lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Now get this. Why? It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. I'm not calling you to conjure up more faith than you have, but simply to put the faith you have, whatever amount you have, in the right thing, in God himself. So let's revisit Romans 4, this great example of faith. Recapping, it says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, without weakening in his faith. He did not waver through unbelief. He was strengthened in his faith. He was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Does that worry you a little bit? Does anything seem a little awkward with that passage? I'm going to go back to a time in my life many years ago where this caused me a lot of trouble. This passage filled me with doubt, you might say. It's a great picture of faith, but I also realized it wasn't completely accurate about Abraham. Does that sound right? Committing adultery to try and fulfill the promise in his own strength, not in God's. I thought this seems like such an apparent contradiction. So the object of my faith was in question to me. And I was just on the rocks. You might have been there in your faith. And I just want to encourage you, there's no question that you've ever asked that hasn't been answered. And I also want to encourage you that the people that have all the answers are usually the people that have gone through the most doubt and had to get to the answers, okay? You're not alone if you've had these doubts, all right? So as I wondered about this and thought about this and asked God, God, what is going on in this passage? Remember, we read everything in context. (laughs) So we go back to the context. He is our Father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. You get that? Abraham had put his faith in Christ and God the Father. That's in Genesis 15, 6. He believed God. He followed God in the unknown. He obeyed him. He did have struggles with doubt in the process. But because he put his faith in God... God saw him as faithful and righteous. Not because of his own perfection, but because of God's own perfection. Because of God's own faithfulness. So as you think about this, realizing that that faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness, that God saw him as faithful even when he lacked it, I want you to notice that about yourselves. Even when you've lacked faith, God sees you as faithful through Christ. And he's not calling you to perfect faith in yourself, but to trust perfect faith himself, Jesus See, 2 Timothy 2.13 says, Even if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. See, God desires that we walk victoriously by faith, 
And he sees you as faithful and righteous even when you fall short of that because of Jesus. Right? But we don't have to fail. That's the great news. We can actually walk in that faith. We can actually walk with the faith that can move mountains. This was clear from Abraham's example, right? That the strength of his faith was not as important as the object of his faith, which was God himself. Remember the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark 9, when Jesus said, if you believe, anything is possible. And he said, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. I want to follow that example, saying, God, I'm willing to believe you for anything. And I'm full of unbelief in my own life. I'm full of doubt in my own life. But I don't want to live there, God. I'm going to take a step today trusting you to build in me what needs to be there. Trusting you to make me who you want me to be, to do what you want me to do. And that brings me to the need to grow our faith. Okay? Faith isn't a quantity that we add to, but it's something that grows. Romans 12.3, and you can read with me, says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. So God's given you a measure of faith. And a lot of us wait around for God to give us more faith before doing anything, not realizing we've been given a measure of faith. Right? It's not time to wait for more, but to realize I've been given what I need. And however much you've been given is enough. In Matthew 17, 20, Jesus says that faith like a mustard seed can move mountains. So I don't know how much Mark has been given, but it's sufficient for what God has called Mark to. Right? And Steve has been given sufficient for what God has called Steve to. But Jesus also tells us in Matthew 13, describing the kingdom of God, that the mustard seed has to grow. Right? And we need to grow our faith just in the same way. I think it's important to think of faith like muscles. Right? If I want to get buff and huge, I don't need to go find new muscles, right? If I said that to you, I'm going to go find some new muscles. You'd think I was crazy, right? I need to grow the muscles that God gave me. That's how I get stronger, right? It's like a bank account. If you want to get rich, you wouldn't say, well, I'm going to go start 12 new bank accounts this week. <laughs> no, you need to invest in the, the one that you already have, right? See, God doesn't want us waiting around for new faith. He wants us exercising the faith that he's already given us. 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul talks to the Corinthians and explains that their faith should continue to grow. And he says the same things to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, saying that it should grow more and more. All right? So there are ways that we can grow our faith. It doesn't have to stay where it's at. But we can grow the faith that God's given us. And it can be strong enough to move whatever mountains you might come up against. So I'm going to go through three ways that you can grow your faith. And I hope that this encourages you a ton. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So God's word grows the faith in us. So I want to encourage you to get in God's word and know God's word and to love God's word, to saturate your life with God's word. 2 Peter 1.3 says that his divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. You don't need more. You've been given it. Now we can walk in it. Right? We've already been given all that we need. James 2.22 tells us that our faith is made complete by what we do. By action. And 26 says that faith without that action is dead. So see, that faith needs to be made complete. It needs to grow by being put into application in our daily lives. That requires cultivating good soil in our hearts and planting God's word deep in that soil so that it can grow. 
And that also involves application. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word, not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. So here's something that you have to get. If you get anything this morning, get this. Knowledge without application leads to deception. Okay? It's right from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Jesus himself said that if we love him, we'll obey his commands. So love is application. It's action. So knowledge, for the sake of knowledge, produces pride. So I can be learning and learning. I can be coming and hearing what Mark has to say and others have to say every week. But if it's not getting into application, it's producing in me pride and deception. But the second I start applying that, it's being made complete and it's being grown. All right? So the bottom line is that I need to apply God's word. And when I do that, what happens? He comes through and it actually pans out. I actually see that his word is valid. See, when God tells me to give money and I don't give, I start to believe the lie that I can't afford to give. But when God says give money and I give to him and then he blesses me more than I ever gave, I start to realize this isn't a lie. I can trust what he says. Do you get that? When, when he says, share your faith with those around you, and I don't do it, I start to believe the lie they don't want to hear. But when I put that into application and take a step of faith and people start coming to Christ, I start to read and believe that people around me are hungry, just like Jesus promised that the harvest was ripe and ready. Okay, next, grow your faith by being faithful with the little for the sake of the little. Luke 16.10 says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. We need to be faithful with the little that God has entrusted to us. So I don't know what that entails for you. It might be something that you're serving in here in the church. It might be your job. It might be family issues. But God has called you to be faithful with those issues. And then in that faithfulness, he'll grow you to be able to be faithful with more. So... Apply God's word. Be faithful with the little that he's already entrusted to you so that he can grow you to be faithful with more. And then finally, grow your faith by attempting great things for the sake of your God. Again, we should not sit around waiting for faith to do what God has called us to do. But we should step out and trust him to give us sufficient faith for the task at hand. Remember the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer in 1 Samuel 14. Where he said, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Let's go do this crazy risk for God. He might show up. Wouldn't that be great? And if he doesn't, we're dead. <laughs> but he might show up. I want to have that kind of perspective on life. The walk of faith is never going to be comfortable. Spurgeon described the Christian content with doing their best for God, saying any fool can do that. Isn't that great? Any fool can do their best for God. He that believes in Christ attempts the impossible and performs it. Remember Luke 137, nothing is impossible with God. I'm not saying just think of some crazy thing and go do it. But God has probably already put in your heart a passion for something that you think is far too great, that you could never accomplish. God wants you to trust him and take a step of faith in the direction of where he's called you, risking everything for him. Growing your faith requires cultivating a lifestyle of taking risks. And you're never going to move a mountain until you take some risks. All right? Xerxes, one of the greatest warriors of all time, said only by great risks can great results be achieved. About four years ago, we trusted God to provide $1 million in two months for a training center. 
And I'm not kidding you. <laughs> my boss, Russ, and I, I don't even like to call him my boss. He's one of my best friends in the world. But after we pitched this idea to our board of directors, we want to trust God for $1 million in the next two months. And they agreed with it and said, let's do it. I was driving home with the contractor that was going to do all the work if the money came through. And this guy, by the way, had already told his whole crew, which were Christians, you can vote on what we do. But if they're going to trust God, let's also trust God that we can be there to do this work at cost if the money comes through. And if it doesn't, we don't have any jobs lined up. A lot of people were taking a lot of steps of faith. I've never felt so scared in my entire life than driving home that night. I was shaking. I was so scared. I remember telling Dave, the contractor, I'm absolutely terrified right now. But see, we are risking something, and we are going in the direction that God had called us, and God came through, and he did it. And Lord willing, this summer, this Great Commission Training Center gets off the ground, and the money's still there. So God has called you to take some risks for him. A life of risk is a life of sacrifice. Romans 12.1 tells you that sacrifice for God and living a life of sacrifice is your reasonable act of worship. In some translations, it's spiritual. It's from the Greek word logikos, and the Greeks used it both for reasonable and spiritual. But it's the word that we get logic from. And Paul is literally saying, considering everything that Christ has sacrificed for you, it would be illogical for you to live any other way than sacrificially for him. Isn't that good? See, we're called to live this sacrificial life for him, laying down ourselves, dying to ourselves so that he can live through us. Tozer describes it this way. In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne, and the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among believers today. We want to be saved, but insist Christ do all the dying. See, he is calling us to a life of laying down our lives and saying, God, I'm willing to do whatever you've called me to. My reputation is yours. My future is yours. My hopes and dreams are yours. I don't have to guard that stuff. I can really trust you with it. I can sacrificially live for you knowing that you're going to do more than I could ever do with what I have on my own. So if you've never begun a relationship with Christ, this is the first step of faith that you get to take. And it's a great step of faith because everything begins there. And it's through that faith that you can have salvation. I want to encourage you to remember Keller's statement, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Don't wait till you have no doubts to come to Christ. But realize he is trustworthy. He is faithful. I'll put my faith in him today. And I'll just briefly say, if you've never started that relationship with Christ, God loves you. He says he loves you with an infinite love. His thoughts for you outnumber the sand of the seas. And you're sinful. And so am I. And so is Mark. And so is Steve. And so are all of us. And that sin separates us from a perfect God. But Jesus Christ came and he died for you and me. That anyone who puts their trust in him, who puts their faith in him, could be saved. For all of eternity, you can be guaranteed that you'll be with him in heaven because you put your faith in him. And not just that, but he says he has a life of abundance and purpose for you on this planet. So if you've never taken that step of faith, I ask you today not to leave without taking that step of faith. And saying, Jesus... Come into my life, forgive me. Be my Savior and Lord. Make me the kind of person that you want me to be. If you want to take that step today, talk to one of the staff before you leave. If you do have that relationship with him, you can experience the victorious faith life that God has for you out of that context of intimacy with him 
and in the power of his Holy Spirit. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to abide in him if we ever want to see this faith life come through us. Oswald Chambers says, the bearing of fruit is always shown in Scripture to be the visible result of an intimate relationship with Jesus. And that's always going to be the case. We need to stop trying to live Christ's life in our own energy. In Galatians 2.20, Paul talked about the life I, I live is no longer mine, but it's his lived through me by faith. See, I need to let him live through me by faith. We also need to allow him to do that through the power of his Holy Spirit. Murray puts it this way. Nothing will help you unless you come to understand that you must live every day under the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants you to be a willing vessel in whom the power of the Spirit is to be manifested every hour and every moment of your life. God will enable you to do that. I have to do this through his power. If we'll truly trust him walking by faith in the power of his Spirit, he will move mountains through us. I promise you. But it's going to take taking that step of faith. And that can be risky. I'm going to close with a statement from Tozer. Again, the faith of Christ will command or it will have nothing to do with a man. The only man who can be sure he has true Bible faith is the one who has put himself in a position where he cannot go back. Pseudo-faith always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. Isn't that how you want to live your life? God, it's either you or total collapse today. It's either you or total collapse today. If that's where you're at, if you want to live that kind of life, answer these three questions. And if you have notes, just between you and God, answer these. Number one, what next step do you need to take to apply God's word? A lot of times we're waiting for God to show us his specific will, forgetting that he's not going to do that until we're obedient to his general will first. Right? So think about God's word and something that he wants you to live applying in his word. Two, what little do you need to be faithful with right now to allow God to grow his faith in you? And three, this is the big one. How will you take a risk for God putting yourself in a situation where you'll fail, lose, and be humiliated if he doesn't show up? I would like every one of us to have an answer to that and to take that risk, trusting him and the power of his spirit to make it reality, realizing that he will come through. And if we never take those steps, we're never going to see them come through. I always tell our students, your weaknesses, inabilities, failures, and past present no challenge to God's will for your life. But your willingness does. So are you willing? Are you willing to let him do this through you? I also always tell them, I don't think you have what it takes. I always like to tell them that before they serve in any way in the ministry. But then I finish saying, but the Holy Spirit in you does. Right? And that's the same for each of you. I don't think any of you guys have what it takes. And I point at myself when I say that as well. But his spirit is in you as a believer, and he has everything it takes. And if you'll walk by faith in him, he'll build this into your life. So as we close, 1 John 5, 4 says, Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. We're going to watch a video, and I hope that uh, you put some of that in the application.
God can do it in here, and he will.